0: Welcome to Smarty Pants, the podcast of The American Scholar Magazine. I'm your host, Stephanie Bastic. In August of 2017, news organizations began reporting of another outbreak of violence against the Rohingya, a Muslim minority in Myanmar. In the month that followed, at least 9,000, and quite possibly well over 13,000, Rohingya died due to military executions, civilian and militia mob violence the wholesale burning of villages, and other psychological trauma that result when 650,000 people flee a country in a three-month period. More have since left. But this is a story we've seen before in Myanmar, in 2014, 2012, 1991, 1942. The conflict is not something new, but it isn't entirely an ancient tension either. In untangling what is manufactured— And who is responsible for that is daunting. Part of the story is the local conflict between the Rohingya, a Muslim ethnic minority, and the Rakhine, a Buddhist ethnic minority. But the other part is how that local conflict spread out to the rest of the country and caught fire in places that hadn't seen this kind of conflict before, that aren't even home to the Rohingya or the Rakhine. And that spread is thanks to the rise of ultra-nationalist Buddhist monks, a military fearful of losing its grip on power, the racial hierarchies imposed by the majority Bama ethnic group, and a transition to a democracy led by a political party whose leader, Aung San Suu Kyi, has her very democratic principles called into question. So it's complicated. The violence has erupted with such speed and such horror that to give a full accounting of the history and politics at play here that stretch all the way back to colonialism would take a whole book. A newspaper might not have time for it, but we certainly do. Journalist Francis Wade has been reporting on Myanmar and Southeast Asia for years, and his new book, Myanmar's Enemy Within, is the full story of the history and political dynamics at play in Burma today. He joins us in the studio to take us behind the headlines. Thanks for being here.
1: No problem. Thank you for having me.
0: So for those listeners whose first introduction to the conflict might have been in August of last year, would you mind setting the stage for us by giving a summary of the latest waves of violence that started in maybe 2012?
1: Well, the violence has mutated essentially since 2012. So back in 2012... It was communal violence, at least in its expression. So ethnic Rakhine Buddhist mobs attacking ethnic Rohingya. And that was triggered by the rape and murder of a Rakhine woman by three Rohingya men. It had been preceded by months of agitation by Rakhine nationalist politicians um, who organized seminars, organized conferences to sort of explain the Rohingya problem, that these are illegal Bengali immigrants, that they're sort of taking over our culture and they're taking our women and so on. That seemed to animate, I suppose, a very deep-seated fear of um islam the role of islam the presence of islam in myanmar even though it was only a local contestation essentially between two ethnic groups in western myanmar it was used by monks um, nationalist politicians activists and so on to direct popular attention Popular anxieties towards Islam writ large in the country. So after 2012, the violence spread to Miktila in central Myanmar in March 2013. Uh, it was in Lashio in Shan State later in 2013. Um, and f- since then, The violence has more or less abated in central Myanmar, but we now have this huge explosion of military on civilian violence in northern Rakhine state. So that could be read, I suppose, as the latest iteration of violence that began in 2012 and has mutated since then.
0: So beyond the violence that's heavily reported in the media, there's also a much slower, more insidious attack on Muslim communities who live in essentially an apartheid state, denied of health care and basic rights within civil society. Does that seem to be intentional from the military uh, to the government on down? Or is that just um, a consequence of, of shuttling people into camps and sort of relegating their care to international aid organizations?
1: I'd say it's very deliberate Um, and it's been going on long before the 2012 violence, and long before the refugee camps sprung up, um, particularly in northern Rakhine State, which has now been sort of all but emptied of Rohingya. Um, There are restrictions, you know, severe restrictions on movement going back to the early 90s. When you look at the violence since August, you have to place it in this kind of longer view of processes that have been in motion for the past sort of three decades or so. This apartheid system that's grown up is, I suppose, a more acute version of a system of at least A, racialized healthcare, B, uh, you know, restrictions on movement akin to the sort of past laws in South in apartheid South Africa, um, very deliberately designed to control the Rohingya population um to limit their access to vital resources like healthcare like education and so on um that's the sort of structural violence that you know it doesn't make the same headlines as physical violence that we see more recently but i think it has a very insidious effect on not only the livelihoods of uh, the targets of that structural violence, but also in terms of how it kind of shapes perceptions of that group across society. To see Rohingya kind of confined to camps, to see them having to get out of their buses, to, you know, hand travel permits over at police checkpoints every day and so on sort of animates this idea that they're a threat, that they need containing. Um, And when that's accompanied by the kind of propaganda we've seen in Myanmar, that speaks very much to this idea that unless we control the Rohingya, then they will grow, they will become more powerful, you know if we keep allowing aid to go to them, then it'll strengthen them, and so on um and that's a vital early process in mobilizing popular support for violence against that target community,
0: right. Right. I mean, it's so striking that for all of the totally abject conditions that the Rohingya live in, they're still not viewed as victims in Myanmar society. And you can see this even in things that Aung San Suu Kyi has said, how there's like a a Muslim lobby, you know, that's publicizing this and getting these people aid and they don't really need aid. It's Buddhists who need aid. I hate to bring everything back to Hitler, but it's very hard to see, you know, like a Rakhine politician favorably compare themselves to Hitler and Eichmann. It's just astonishing sort of how how rapid this hatred has become.
1: Yeah, it's frightening. Um, And it doesn't seem as if there's any sort of institution of state that's willing to rein it in whatsoever. And that's certainly been the case since 2012. You know, there have been countless examples of speech that's clearly designed to mobilize groups to attack Rohingya. Um, You know, even articles in state-run media since Rohingya insurgent attacks in October 2016, where, and I'm thinking of one editorial in the um, Global New Light of Myanmar, which is the biggest sort of state-run newspaper in the country, um, that described the Rohingya as human fleas um, that we hate for sucking our blood exactly the kind of language that the nazis used against the jews um these are clear warning signs that processes are in motion to if not cleanse a group then attack a group on mass um in this case it certainly has been cleansing no one's acted on those neither ansan Ky, neither you know feeble media watchdogs that exist in the country government-run media watchdogs and so on i think there's been a huge abdication of responsibility on the part of pretty much all institutions of authority, whether political or religious or so on.
0: Right. I mean, the the elephant in the room, of course, is Aung San Suu Kyi, who has been, in the months since August, stripped of a lot of international awards and honors and everything. What do you think is going on with the NLD? I mean, how does it seem to Aung San Suu Kyi that letting a whole community die either through neglect or willful slaughter is achieving a pluralistic democracy? Or is the word democracy in the NLD really in the eyes of the beholder?
1: It's it's difficult to know what's going on with Aung San Suu Kyi, to be honest. Um, There are various theories put forward, each of which I think have merit. You know, there's this idea that she can't um, control the military, which is true. She entered into a very delicate power-sharing agreement with the military. um, And I think part of that You know agreement would have been to not publicly criticize the military she's also said how fond she is of the military you know she's her father's daughter her father was the military leader and i think that part's kind of overlooked in all of this there's this sort of almost perverse yeah i guess fondness of the institution regardless of what it's done um this fondness for its position, you know, Vaulted position as the protector of the country. Um she's also beholden to this very powerful Buddhist nationalist lobby group, um, which makes up a huge sort of cross section of her constituency. But I also think that the Rohingya were never they were never really included in these sort of cross ethnic calls for solidarity that her party, the NLD and other sort of luminaries of the pro-democracy movement, um gave you know they were always sort of peripheral to the pro-democracy movement's vision of a democratic country where all ethnic groups are given equal rights because they've never really been at least in the last of 30 40 years haven't been considered to be an ethnic group um so i think people sort of you know these awards have been stripped from her because there's this idea that she's sort of u-turned on her commitment to non-violence and to equal rights and so on Um, But I think that misses the fact that, you know, there's a certain continuity in the lack of sympathy she and her colleagues in government have shown towards the Rohingya, because that sympathy was never really there beforehand anyway. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that's been left out of a lot of the analysis on this. Perhaps certain ideals have changed now that she's a politician. You know, we don't really know because those ideals, when she wrote about them or spoke about them um, while under house arrest, while in opposition, they were never really tested Mm -hmm. as such. We just assumed that that was her sort of direction, her orientation. That's been roundly revised. And I think it's, you know, a cautionary tale in sort of evaluating political figureheads and drawing assumptions of what they're going to be like when in power, when no one's really tested them.
0: Right. One thing that comes up again and again, as those nationalist politicians in Rakhine were saying, is that the Rohingya are not Burmese, that they're Bengali interlopers, they're lying about a history in the region. But the Rohingya have been in the region and Muslims have been in the country for centuries. And they've had political, military, social roles under various empires, including the British. And um, one of the things that you point out in your book is that a lot of the current politicizing of ethnicity can be traced back to the British Empire.
1: That's right. Um, It's a very complicated situation. Um, Essentially, what we see today in Myanmar is very different to the Myanmar of pre-colonial rule. So ethnic identities, as you said, are heavily politicized um, in Myanmar today. And the lines between different ethnic groups are highly volatile. That wasn't the case before colonial rule, at least anywhere near to the same degree. So prior to colonial rule, which began in 1824, the territory known today as Myanmar was a landscape of innumerable, porous, interchangeable identity groups. So there were certainly ethnic groups. But their loyalties were much more towards political authorities rather than their own ethnic kin. So there are stories, if you go back to sort of, you know, the 18th century of ethnic Mon fighting at the behest of a Bamar king against ethnic Mon or against Bamar. So they weren't these sort of polarised ethnic identities when the british came to the country they essentially needed to make legible a very complex moving tapestry of identity groups so they created censuses whereby people were given particular designators i.e their ethnic identity in some cases the british assigned ethnic names to different groups um, and this had the effect of essentially calcifying distinctions between groups So once they'd been porous, people moved between different identity groups. Now they sort of inhabited these very rigid boundaries. Um, And that's the kind of thing that creates the sort of foundation for conflicts along ethnic lines. And the military very much played on that after it came to power in 1962. Um, It played on the idea that we have these discrete ethnic identities, um, that some belong, some don't. Some are superior to others. Others are sort of threatening to the homogeneity of the country. And so it very much manipulated the lines of difference between different ethnic groups. Hence, we have these sort of deep and long-lasting antagonisms.
0: It's weird to see how the military, after seizing power post-independence, tried to distance itself from colonialism, sort of play along the same lines that the British were. So prior to actively engaging in ethnic cleansing, In what kinds of ways did the military escalate these conflicts, censuses, mass conversions? I mean, how else has the military had its hand in this?
1: Yeah, well, as well as um, the ethnic issue, which I've talked about, um, at least after the second military junta came to power in 1988, the State Law and Order Restoration Council, after they came to power... um, They vigorously promoted Buddhism as the sort of de facto state religion, as the sort of superior religious belief system in the country, promoted the idea that other religions, other minority religions such as Islam, Christianity were, um, you know, inferior and threatening to Buddhism. And so in a lot of places where these minority religions exist, it tried to plant Buddhism or Buddhist communities, sow the Buddhist seeds, so to speak. Um, amongst these communities. So it set up Buddhist sort of missionary schools um, where villages, particularly in poor Christian areas, were coerced or incentivized to send their children to these Buddhist schools where they'd be converted to Buddhism, they'd be taught by monks and so on. It also created in Northern Rakhine State where the latest violence has happened, it created this network of Natala villages. Um, Natala is the um, abbreviation of the local border affairs ministry. And those were essentially model Buddhist villages where settlers, Buddhists from elsewhere in the country, even from prisons, from homeless squatter camps on the edge of Yangon and so on, they were sent um, to this remote pocket of the country in order to settle on Muslim land. They were given free housing, free monthly stipends, food, and so on. And the idea was to dilute the Muslim population. Um, and so the militaries had these sort of various, slightly harebrained, um, ambitious schemes to essentially weaken other religions and expand the presence of Buddhists um, to the periphery of the country where it's been lacking.
0: So have any of these schemes worked? Does it seem like the Natala villages have in fact strengthened the presence of Buddhism or is it more of a superficial change?
1: To me, it seems very superficial. If you had gone to Northern Rakhine State prior to the um, latest violence, when the area was sort of intact, so to speak, you would have come across these settler villages and they're full of very despondent people who have been duped into coming there. They're not really serving a functional purpose. They may have helped to sort of break up the communal harmony of Rohingya to a degree. But whether, you know, it's really done anything to expand the sort of parameters of Buddhism itself, um, I don't see any evidence of that. I see pawns of a state-building project being moved to the edge of the country to serve as sort of instruments of state power.
0: We're going to take a quick break, When we're back, we will get to the political actors in Myanmar who are more effective than the military and maybe even more powerful, the ultra-nationalist Buddhist lobby. So the other movement that has arguably more effectively been altering the course of Buddhism in Myanmar has been the ultra-nationalist monks. Can you talk a bit about um, the Mabata movement and then the preceding 969 movement and where they fit into this ethnic religious conflict
1: yeah well the 969 movement arose after the 2012 violence in Rakhine state Um, and so in the I suppose nine months between the first wave of violence in Rakhine state in June 2012 and the first wave of violence in central Myanmar which was March 2013 Buddhists nationalist groups, ultra-nationalist groups, um, began to agitate very publicly against not just Rohingya, but Muslims sort of in general. And they started to sort of publish incendiary material that disparaged Islam, um, that cast it as a threat to the country, to the centrality of Buddhism in the country. They... At least a senior sort of clique of monks um, would tour the country regularly after June 2012 and sermonize on the peril that Islam posed to Buddhism. Um, and often their sermons would precede bouts of violence. You know, in Maitila, for example, a prominent monk, Uwarathu, um, is believed to have visited two months before the violence or three months before the violence. He gave a sermon kind of imploring um, the people of Maitila to break all ties with Muslims, depicted them as a kind of rampaging force of aggressive proselytizers who, if weren't checked, would sort of spell the end of Buddhism. And because these monks, you know, monks are traditionally the teachers. They're the kind of social glue of society in Myanmar. They've occupied a very venerated position. A, that means a lot of what they say is automatically believed, B, there's a huge taboo against um, challenging a monk or criticizing a monk. Um, And so essentially that provided a very powerful platform for these ultra-nationalist monk agitators to begin to sort of um, agitate against Islam without receiving any censure from anyone in government or civil society. And so this movement 969, which then kind of morphed into Mabatha, was able to grow unchecked. And came to have a very influential role not just on mobilizing groups of civilians on the ground to attack Muslims, but also on um sort of passing legislation in Parliament, um, to prevent interfaith marriages between Buddhists and Muslims, even to restrict the birth rates of Rohingya in Rakhine State.
0: Right, right. So I mean, why Why was Mabata able to capitalize so much and so quickly on what seemed like a pretty isolated ethnic conflict? How did it manage to spin the Rohingya conflict in Rakhine to include other Muslim groups in other parts of the country without Rakhine's history of ethnic tension?
1: Yeah, it's a good question. Um, I think what's important to remember in this is that You know, this isn't purely an ethnic conflict. It's not purely a religious conflict. It's not a political conflict, as some have framed it. Um, There are these multiple cleavages at play. But I think more importantly, that part of the country, Rakhine State, and particularly the border with Bangladesh, has always occupied quite a sort of difficult position in the public imagination in Myanmar. That border's nickname is the Western Gate. And the sort of fear is that if the Western Gate falls... Then, you know, Islamic cultures from the subcontinent will sweep into Myanmar and bring about the end of Buddhism. So it sort of led to this very powerful siege mentality. And acts of violence committed by Rohingya, who are believed to be this sort of, you know, illegal Bengali immigrant community, um, Islamic force, are seen as the sort of final piece of evidence that the Western Gate is weak. The Rohingya are doing the bidding of, you know, Islamic cultures to the west of the country um, in Bangladesh or in India and so on. Um, and so that sort of takes the dimensions of the conflict beyond just the local contestation in Rakhine state to something much larger, um, because it's not just one ethnic group, the Rakhine, that's threatened. It's the entire sort of Buddhist culture of Myanmar. And these narratives play an extremely powerful role in mobilizing public resentment and then support for violence against the Rohingya. But there's also very much, uh, I guess, an incentive among particularly ethnic oriented politicians like the Rakhine politicians or others to use the political opening to jockey for positions of power in the country and also to use those fissures um, between different ethnic groups um, and the antagonisms or the fears, the suspicions that their own sort of ethnic constituency holds. You know, it's kind of sort of Conflict Studies 101. If you mobilize groups to attack one another and if you ensure the violence, if the people engineering the violence ensure that it's um, incredibly vicious, then it almost creates enemies doesn't necessarily result from a pre-existing enemy dynamic and so you know people talk about violence mass violence during democratization being a case of these sort of so-called ancient hatreds being brought to the surface um, that have been sort of kettled for so long but i think certainly it's also the case in myanmar and many other countries that you have these political elites that see real political incentives for um driving violence Given that it causes people to sort of rally closer towards their ethnic representative,
0: right. And it also, I mean, if you're busy attacking horizontally other groups, you have less energy to direct your anger, your rage, your revolutionary potential against like the military who are exactly grabbing land yeah. or you know, stripping people of rights, et cetera. Um, so one thing that you note is that the perception in Myanmar of the military has so completely changed in the last couple of years. With the rise of the civilian coalition, right, in government, the military is in retreat, allegedly. Um, the NLD is ascendant. And yet, the military is amping up its propaganda and its presence in Rakhine and elsewhere, um, as it has done in borderlands across the country for decades. But the difference seems to be that now they have public support, whereas before, nobody really fell for it. They sort of knew that the military was engineering these conflicts. Why? why has that changed
1: so i mean the curious thing about what's happened since august in particular is that you have um as you say a military that was so unpopular for so long um and that ruled with you know little disregard for sort of public dignity public security public livelihoods um at the precise moment that they're supposed to be stepping back from power they've um I mean, they haven't been rehabilitated so much because they are never sort of debilitated, um, if that's the right word to use. They've become, in the public eye in Myanmar, defenders of the country against this sort of crusading Islamic force, these conquestors in the form of the Rohingya, um, who we should, you know, note are the most politically and physically repressed group in the country. Um, the idea that they really pose a security threat to the country is ludicrous. But essentially, the military has been able to, at least in my view, been able to point to the fears that democratization will, you know, bring about a certain leveling of the political playing field, um, that if the NLD were, you know, truly a civilian government, then it might enfranchise the Rohingya, give them citizenship. That would weaken the standing of other communities um, in Myanmar. There's this idea that democratization is almost a sort of zero-sum game, that were other communities, particularly these maligned sort of outsider communities like the Rohingya, to be empowered, to be given political voice, to be given access to resources, then other communities would suffer. And so... The violence begs the question, doesn't it imperil the democratization process? It seems from afar that that's quite obvious. But I think inside the country, the violence might be the making of the democratic Myanmar because it is driving out this community that threatens whatever sort of limited democratic gains other communities will have or will enjoy across the transition. So the military has gone from being this you know, aggressive institution, that's denied agency to um, the people of Myanmar for so long to essentially the safeguard of that country, the protector of that country against this sort of Islamic peril. Um, And it's been quite an astonishing shift, particularly for someone like myself who sort of began working on the country while it was still under military rule. And pretty much all the stories we covered back then were about the crimes committed by the military. And now you have a military that's seen to be a sort of, you know, at least in the case of the Rohingya, not other ethnic groups that have been attacked by the military, at least in the case of the Rohingya, it's become what seems to be quite a sort of virtuous institution.
0: Well, given the abdication, as you've said, of the government or religious organizations in intervening in this crisis, I mean, I know your, your book was finished before the most recent wave of violence in August, but There were some community-driven efforts that you did talk about, um, interfaith activists, certain abbots who didn't necessarily hew to the ultra-nationalist line. I mean, given how things have escalated since then, do you think that those are still avenues for optimism, for
1: hope? I think they have to be. Um, the problem now is that it's essentially become a huge security threat were you to speak out in defence of the Rohingya and were you to criticize, you know, the actions of the military or the actions of Rakhine mobs who have helped the military since August. Certainly the activists that, you know, I know and that I've documented are still doing their work but they have to do it very quietly now and they have to sort of change um, their strategy completely especially in you know rakhine state there were groups um who were you know quietly trying to bring the two communities together so organizing games of football whereby rakhine and rohingya were played together in mixed teams um you know film screenings they would gather together and learn English that's all had to stop since August last year Um, and I think once it's reached that point and once the government's shown a clear sort of indifference to a community that did until recently number one million in the country um, then that signals that things are going downhill very quickly um, and it's difficult to know without that will in the government or without that will even in you know the monastic community in Myanmar Um, without that, how things are really going to improve anytime soon.
0: This interview is a little bit longer than other ones, mostly because there hasn't been much about this deep history. And I thought it was quite important to get the whole story out there. Um, Even so, we didn't cover everything. I highly recommend Francis Wade's book, Myanmar's Enemy Within, for the deeper story of what's going on in Myanmar. Uh, Again, it was written before... The August 2017 escalations, but it is very helpful in understanding the context of what's happening. So it's a hard read, but it's a good one. So thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you next week. Till then, take care and stay sharp. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands.